Thank you. My name is Michael Grubbs. You might know my son, Nolan. He gave the scripture last week. I'm going to read out of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God shown those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones slandering the noble name of him who you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you have sinned and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Forever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you, commit, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Like Marshall said, my name's Ellie Carlson, and I think it's been almost six years um, that my husband and I have been here at Vancouver Vineyard. Um, but I am new up here to preaching, so I thought I would take a minute just to introduce myself. Um, I'm from Vancouver, born and raised, uh, and then I left for college and early adulthood and ended up back here, like I said, I absolutely never would, um, but I, could, I couldn't be happier about it. Um, I'm a high school Spanish and social studies teacher, um, but most recently I'm full-time mom to three little boys uh, and as of January, also foster mom. Um, we've had a two-year-old little girl in our home for the last seven months that actually just went home yesterday. Uh, so it's been a big weekend in the Carlson house, and if any feelings leak out over the course of the next half an hour, that's where they're coming from. <laughs> um, but it's been a wonderful, very busy adventure in our home. Um, and I'll be honest, it is not easy to get up here and speak on behalf of God, um, being fully aware of my sin nature. And I just want to take a minute to recognize our pastoral team. Uh, and spoiler alert, they're not perfect people. And uh, this job would be a lot easier without a sin nature. And what it requires is so much submission and commitment and humility to God's will. And I just want to recognize them um, for the work that they do week in and week out to show up for us. So thank you, pastoral team. <laughs> Having said that, I'm very excited about our passage for today. The sins described in this passage come 
all too naturally to me. Um, and the lesson that I hear from this scripture is one that God has been very specifically at work on in me for, for many years. So I'd love to pray for us. Um, and then if you'll let me read our scripture one more time, I'd love to do that. So let's pray. Father God, we believe that you love completely and unconditionally. We believe that you created this world and that you know how it's meant to work. We desire to be like you and to bring about restoration to the hurting in this time in your name. We believe you've given us scripture to guide and transform us and we just welcome that here today. Amen. And I just, I think this is one of those scriptures that kind of speaks for itself sometimes. So if you'll let me, I'm, I'm going to read it one more time uh, and then we'll dive in. Again, it's James 2, 1 through 13. It says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And then a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, stand there or sit by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so what happens here? We hear a story of a host welcoming dinner guests into his home. And as the guests enter, the host makes some split-second judgments, right? He sizes up his guests, presumably by their appearance, and decides that the rich-looking, well-dressed guest is going to be his guy. And just kind of gives this dismissive wave to the poor man. And the passage says, he got it wrong. His split-second judgments about who he wanted to be friends with, or who would have had more to offer him, or who was worth talking to, were just totally off. It says the rich one you favored is the very one that is exploiting you, and the poor man you dishonored will inherit God's kingdom. The passage goes so far as to say in verse nine, if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now we know John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have everlasting life. We are loved and saved from ourselves the moment we turn to the cross. 
we know God saves and changes us with his love. But there's more. I picture Jesus, if you've ever done preschool pickup, just down on his knees, arms open wide like this, waiting for us to run into them. But then I picture him offering his hand and motioning forward, inviting us to join him on the journey. And he's not going to let go of that hand. But he's also going to let us be a part of changing the world if we choose to walk with him. James doesn't baby it here. I've seen this passage titled The Sin of Partiality and also Favoritism Forbidden. James puts this sin on the level of murder and adultery. And you might be free and clear on those ones, but I guarantee not a one of us gets away with being blameless of partiality, favoritism, judgment, Maybe not even since we woke up this morning. And if you'll humor me, we're going to start with the conviction side of this passage because, well, I had to sit with my sin on this one, so now you have to too. <laughs> but I promise we'll get to the then what real quick. So let's imagine this dinner party scene. Let's put us, ourselves in the shoes of this host. So think about a space that you operate in with other people. Maybe it's your office. Maybe it's a classroom. Maybe it's church, your living room, maybe it's still a Zoom call, I hope not. But let's think, who are our rich and poor? For this audience, the sin of partiality was socioeconomic status. But what else might we need to hear from this passage? So let's imagine welcoming people into that space of ours. Put yourself in that office or living room or classroom. Imagine different people walking in and your genuine reaction to them. You're not saying it out loud so you can be honest with yourself. What filters might be present for you that we can have in mind as we meditate on this scripture? Age. Think of that slow, old, chatty guy walking in. Or middle-aged lady. Or even a teenager. <laughs> what about political affiliation? Race, fitness level, personal style, level of extroversion. What if they're awkward and shy? What if they come in mouth first? Religious or cultural expression, profession. Maybe it is socioeconomic status. I can guarantee you that at least as a nation, we have not overcome that one yet. And as we sit with all of our different biases that maybe we don't mean to have, maybe we don't even want to have them, maybe it's stuff that we inherited from our childhood, we've soaked up from our surroundings. When we find ourselves broken and guilty, we look to Jesus. He has not let go of our hand. And this is where you have to hear from a mom. Because whenever I doubt God's love for my broken self, I think about my kids. I have been screamed at for setting a plate of warm home-cooked food in front of my child. I'm not the only one. I have been vilified for choosing the wrong stuffed animal at bedtime. It's the monkey every time, just so you know. I have been physically assaulted for guiding my child safely across a busy street. <laughs> 
And guess what? I have never, and I will never let go. How much more does our perfect God hold tightly to our hand? He already sent his son to die for us. He is committed, I promise. So let's look at where Jesus leads. I think whenever we're convicted, we should say, okay, if not this, then what? So let's look at a couple of examples of what Jesus does. Think of the Zacchaeus story in Luke 19. There are so many people around, right? And Zacchaeus is hated. I mean, he's essentially a criminal for what he has done as a taxpayer. But Jesus doesn't make a snap judgment. He chooses to stop and to look up in that tree and give Zacchaeus the time of day. He looked up and he engaged with Zacchaeus. And it turns out Zacchaeus was ready for a change. And then also the bleeding woman in Matthew 9. It's again a crowd of people, so many people that Jesus could have chosen to interact with. But the passage says, Jesus turned and he saw her. And I compare this to that dismissive wave of the James 2 passage. He stopped, he turned, he saw, and she was healed. And that moment made all the difference for her. Luke 18, 15 says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples wanted to give the wave. And Jesus says, that has no place in my kingdom. And finally, John 4 is the story of the woman at the well. It says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I am no expert, but I do know that this interaction carries a lot of culturally and ethnically complicated context. Both sides of this conversation were expected to make a snap judgment and carry on their way. But again, Jesus stops and he engages and he learns and this woman experiences mental, spiritual, emotional healing and then she goes on to carry the good news of the gospel. And it's easy to zoom through these stories because a lot of you have probably heard them countless times. But we have to learn how Jesus does it. He stops, he looks, he sees, he invites, he chats up. He slows down and he engages with these people. And it makes me think that this sin of partiality is kind of a sneaky sin of simply dismissing, ignoring, discounting, rushing past the very people that Jesus would have us linger with. That maybe judgment starts with just an unwillingness to make time or space for someone because of who we assume them to be. And in rushing past them or waving them away to that metaphorical foot of the table, we miss the chance to live out the gospel. Matthew 25, 35 is one of my favorite scriptures and it says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, these are the righteous that will inherit his kingdom. This is the work that he's prepared for us to do. This making space and inviting in and engaging with and slowing down for. I just think is the meat and potatoes of living like Jesus. And it's ironic that it's me that's speaking to you about this today. Because I will be honest with you, I am probably one of the most guilty of rushing past, ignoring, and dismissing. I get so wrapped up in to-do lists and punctuality and where I'm heading that I totally miss what's going on around me and more importantly, to whom. But I know God's at work on me in this one because he's been very clear about surrounding me with people who excel at slowing down and making space. Have you ever noticed that before, that sometimes God uh, is really good at highlighting your weaknesses by just lining you up with a bunch of good examples? It's kind of annoying sometimes. My husband is one of them. And my closest friends, sometimes to my chagrin, are remarkable examples of slowing down, engaging and prioritizing the people around them. My friend Mary, for example, she forever finds herself in these deep, meaningful conversations with random people at the grocery store, or parents in pickup lines, clients at her work. She's the one that comes home from the park with some lady's phone number and a play date on the calendar. She's the one who heard the homebound old lady across the street's testimony and was just encouraged by her old lady wisdom. And honestly, it kind of starts to make you mad. Like, how does this keep happening to you? Like, how do you do this? all the time. And then one day, we were out on a walk together, toddlers and strollers in tow, and she sees someone backing out of a driveway. Um, and she'd just been telling me about this house. It had been renovated. It recently sold. She'd love to meet the new owners, classic Mary. Um, and all of a sudden, I turn around, and Mary's just stopped like 15 feet behind me on the side of the road. You know, I'm zooming along with my stroller. Um, and the car pulls out of the driveway, and backs past Mary and puts it in drive and motors away. All while Mary's just standing there, pleasantly smiling, the person behind the wheel. And as the car drives away, Mary just shrugs and says, hmm, I thought I'd see if they roll down their window and keeps walking. And I'm sure that doesn't sound revolutionary to you, but in that moment, all I could think was, that's how you do it. That is how you have all these meaningful moments with people. You make room. It was one of those moments when God just slapped me upside the head, metaphorically speaking, obviously, and said, slow down. That's it. You have nowhere to be and nothing to do that's more important than being right where I have you, than seeing and making space for the people that I created in love. That's how Mary does it, and that's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus healed. 
saved and loved. He stopped, he looked, he waited, and he engaged. Turns out sometimes they just drive right past you. But God spoke to me even in that. And still, I think this is just step one of what Jesus would have us do and what we see Jesus do. He slows down and makes space for people. And then, contrary to James 2, he invites them to the head of the table. And in the story of Zacchaeus, that's literal. They have dinner together. But since some of the other interactions, we see it more figuratively as we see Jesus treating them with genuine kindness, respect, and dignity when these people were used to the opposite for some defining characteristic. And I'm struck by how many people in this world are used to being put in a box. The poor one, the loud one, the dumb one, the old one, the trendy one, the churchy one, the political one. I mean, it's endless. And I want to tell you a story about a semester I spent studying abroad in Argentina when I was in college. And it was an amazing experience. It's a beautiful country, great food. Um, I mean, I have people there that I would still consider to be friends to this day, and that was over a decade ago. But I had one professor who absolutely terrified me. And it did not help at all that he looked exactly like Professor Snape from Harry Potter. <laughs> shoulder-length black hair and all. <laughs> but you know when someone, you can just tell sometimes when someone doesn't want you there. The other two professors from this class, they were warm and helpful and kind and welcoming, but this guy just brooded at the sight of me and the other exchange students. We spent a semester learning about the indigenous populations in Latin America. It was fascinating. Two of which, were the Incas and the Aztecs. If you've heard of Machu Picchu, you've heard of the Incas. To give you a little context, both of these civilizations were remarkable in their accomplishments and also very imperialistic um, in their conquering of neighboring people groups. They grew to be massive empires and they required taxes in the form of money or labor to support their growing empires. The Aztecs were known for being particularly brutal and that they use their conquered people for human sacrifices. Well, it was a great semester. It was very hard. Come the end of the semester, getting ready for the final exam in true culture shock fashion. It was no written individual assessment. It was a verbal group interview. That was standard practice. And as luck would have it, the group of exchange students got to do our interview with Professor Snape. So we hobbled through, decently enough, recounting what we'd learned that semester in our broken Spanish, all the while hoping we were doing okay, because his facial expression certainly never would have led us to believe so. And we talked about the human sacrifices, the imperialism, the technological advancements, the societal structures, the subjugation of neighboring peoples. And then came his final question. Tell me, how does it feel to be from a country so similar to the Aztecs. For my college credit final exam grade, how do I feel about being an imperialistic conquering American? 
Now here's the thing, I'm a US history teacher. I will be first in line when it comes to recounting the good, the bad, and the so, so ugly of our nation's history. But in that moment, I realized all I was to this man was an American. Nothing else mattered and nothing else had mattered from the moment I walked into his classroom. And at first I thought, I have never been treated with such swift judgment before in my entire life. But I've since realized I've probably been treated with swift judgment many times in my life. It just had usually benefited me instead of the other way around. And I think that's worth reflecting on for us here today. Have you found your safe self in that place of judgment? Do you know how unfair and maddening it is to just be swept to the side and reduced to a label? And maybe equally importantly, do you not know? Because the reality is, if you're like me and for most of your life you've been given the benefit of the doubt, it can be really hard to see these dismissive waves and subtle judgments at work. And it can be really hard to understand the profound effect that they have on one's countenance and trajectory. And I do believe we're a church that's self-reflective in this area. I do. But let's make sure that when we're the ones that are invited to the head of the table, that we are people who stop and we look around to see who wasn't. When we experience favor, how might we as Christians use that as leverage in the name of Jesus to invite others to join us? James finishes the story with speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And perhaps this recognition and sharing of favor is one way that we can live into what James meant with the conclusion of this passage. And this message may have been written hundreds of years ago, but I can't think of anything more applicable to our current day. I mean, we're living in an age of fierce division. And we have created so many labels to categorize and judge people by. I honestly think one of our favorites right now is to judge people for being judgmental. <laughs> Which is maybe good, but like pretty hypocritical and kind of complicated. And I, I worry that as a society, we're spending so much time spinning our wheels about the headlines and the macro issues, that we're missing the chance to change the world in the name of Jesus with the people right next to us. And it can feel real hopeless. But that's when we look to Jesus. He says, watch me. Watch how I do it. And we see him turning to strangers, engaging with the outcast, inviting the tax collector to the head of the table. And what's so great is I am preaching to the choir here. This group of people has been yet another gift from God in showing me what it looks like to dine like Jesus. Open tables and open doors abound in this place. Let that be what we're known for. 
in a world where people are used to swift judgments and busy schedules, let's be known for having time and making space. Let's always be checking and rechecking the biases and first impressions that have maybe been programmed into us and fight those with a pause just to see if people might roll down their window. And now I think there's another perspective that's important to look at in the scripture. We're convicted to be people who live like Jesus, who seek out and make space for all people at his table. But the other side of this coin is God talking to the poor man who's dismissed to the floor. Maybe you identify with the poor man. Maybe you feel like there are people in your life who just dismiss you or that you've been treated a certain way because of your looks or your interests or that you're treated just by your shortcomings. What we hear in this passage is that this is absolutely the antithesis of how God views us. He knows us all the way instead of operating on assumptions. And he treats us not even justly, but lovingly through the eyes of the cross. God looks at you and he says, I know you. I know your beauty and I know your brokenness. I know your outward personality, but I also know your inward insecurities. And you are invited to the head of the table. Here's a good seat for you. You are an honored guest in my home. I wanna show you a clip that for me visualizes this message. And I know you're used to clips of renowned vineyard pastors uh, and quotes from brilliant theologians, but real talk, I'm a mom of toddlers, so I speak from what I know. So. Here we go, let's see if we can get this to work. I know your name. This does not define you. I know who you are. Those are healing words. That's the gospel for every one of us. Sometimes for me, it just helps to see it and hear it sung in beautiful music. And if you've been dismissed or judged too swiftly, if you feel like you have been put in a box or relegated to the sidelines at any point in your life, hear this message. This is not God's place for you. You are known and you're loved and you are welcomed in a place of honor. There is space and purpose for you in this world. Jesus, our creator, walks towards us in our pain and brokenness, not away. And then he asks us to do the same. And he shows us that this subtle switch, this posture of slowing down and turning towards changes the course of lives. I'm gonna finish today with a quote that my dad recently shared with me from a man named Buckminster Fuller, if you're looking for any baby names. He's an architect, a writer, designer, philosopher, and he says, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. 
Jesus gives us the model here. It's not grandiose, but it does require daily, intentional, countercultural work. And he's invited us, the church, to make the judgment-ridden, divided nature of our world obsolete. So let's step into the true heart of the gospel and receive God's words for us that we are loved beyond measure, created in his image. We are worthy and welcome at his table. And then let's live like Jesus, with eyes and hearts for his people, willing to wait and to engage with those around us and trusting that that journey is gonna be messy. But that is, as we walk humbly with God and choose mercy over judgment, we're living out the kingdom here on earth.